If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. And we'll be taking up our study again here. We have been walking through this letter over the last, well, nearly a year now. And so we'll be taking it up again here this morning, and we'll be looking at chapter 11, verses 2 through 16 this morning. Now, as we come to our passage here, we'd be right to come to it with a right sense of humble trembling. Now, if you know our verses and our passage, and maybe you do, maybe you don't, and you know the issues that are being addressed here, you might know something of what I mean by that, by the sense of trembling. As we look at this, as you'll see, as we look at this, these verses, it may be that you look at them and you're trembling in view of the implications or trembling in view of the world or whatever it may be. But let me encourage us, that is not why we are to tremble as we come to these verses this morning. We are to tremble because it's God's word. We tremble and may you and may all of us come to these verses trembling in the spirit of Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2. Where God, he said this, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That is why we should tremble as we come to these verses. And as I read these verses here in just a second, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage all of us here to consider ourselves, to consider yourself. So as we look here, consider what's the nature of your coming to these verses? What is your demeanor? What are you perhaps trembling at? at? Is it the world? Is it the, the culture? Is it even the way you have learned things? What are you trembling at as you come before these verses this morning? Well, may we Come with that spirit, with the spirit of Isaiah 66, verse 2, trembling at God's word. Not because you're afraid of scripture or culture or something else, but because you fear God. Amen. And you desire and you long to understand his word. And you long to receive it in your life, and in all things. So let's see this then here. Let's read here beginning with verse 2 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. May the Spirit of God bring illumination to his words, and even as we just sang, his words are wonderful. God says through Paul, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, the traditions even as I delivered them to you. 
But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her hair, head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, I would imagine you know something of what I mean by how I began the sermon. <laughs> Why these verses here may indeed cause you some trembling. <laughs> what do these verses mean? And of course, we have the waves of our culture that certainly do not like these verses whatsoever. And so if you didn't know, now you do. So as we come, like I said, we need to come to these verses with a great deal of humility. And a great deal of humility is needed as we come here on your part and on my part as well. However, if we take this book as a whole so far, and we've walked from the beginning until this point, We've seen quite a few points and emphases that should have already rightly humbled and challenged us as well, right? They've already called us to live in submission to God, to come to life in all things in view of Christ and the cross of Christ, and to deny ourselves because we are dead, but we are alive in Christ. And so we're to live like that. Now, if you remember, Paul, he just addressed, like in the last few chapters, he addressed idols, idolatry, and Christian freedom. And he addressed all those in chapters 8 through 10. That's where we're coming out of. And so we saw that. And the truth is, and you know this, and maybe you remember this as we've walked through those chapters and verses, that we have no lack of idols 
and wrestling with idols in our day. Like everyone in this room, we wrestle with idols. Even as the reformer said, one of the reformers said that we are an idol factory. And so we see that, but amidst it all, what did we see as we looked at those chapters? Well, we saw Christ. We saw the gospel lifted high in all things as we do all things. Everything in view of the gospel. Everything in view of Christ. And so we saw Christ and the gospel lifted up. We even see the echoes right here in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, when it says, Paul says, the Spirit of God says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we are to be like Christ in everything. And just pausing there and just asking you, Paul has been emphasizing that, highlighting that, underlining that. Do you want that? Do you want Christ in all things? Do you want to be like Christ in all things? Well, may you take up exactly that this morning. Because God's will for you is to be like Christ in all things. And so, we come to these verses. But before we do, even more along those same lines, we're told back in chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, you remember what Paul said there? He said, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body, whatever you do with it, it's not Yours, you are to glorify God with your body. But that's not all he said, right? We also read then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. Encapsulating everything that you do, that it would be done for his glory. And so we come to these inspired words here, then, in view of Christ, in view of God and glorifying Him in all things. As Paul, he turns here to give instructions here on headship and worship. Headship and worship. Now, as Paul does this, He's not putting Christ away, like putting him away in an attic somewhere. Like, yeah, we spent a good amount of time so far talking about Christ and the centrality of Christ. Well, let's go and we're going to put him away in a cupboard and just kind of keep him there. And then we'll pick him back up later. Well, he's not doing that here. Christ is in view throughout these verses. Yet, we admit we come to this passage amidst a world at odds with it. And this passage will challenge that. It will challenge a world in odds of this passage. It will challenge you. 
Yet, regardless of the world and its ways, we come then to these first verses here and this first driving point of all these verses in verses 2 through 3, and it's this. The glory of biblical headship. The glory of biblical headship. Now, before Paul fully engages this point, though, he begins it with a commendation in verse 2. So the Corinthians, they remembered Paul and held to the traditions or ordinances that he delivered to them. Now, we don't really know what all that Paul means here with that, with like how they remembered him or the traditions that they're holding to here. Perhaps they're, you know, he's referring to them remembering him in prayer. I mean, we see that in the epistles often, like Paul, he begins his epistles saying, you know, how often I've remembered you in my prayers. I always remember you in my prayers. And so perhaps in some way, that's what they're doing here. But they have remembered him in prayer or when it comes to the traditions, he's talking about various teachings that he's set before them, he's taught them, which would also align even with things that he says here in this letter and even things he'll say in short measure. Now, even here though, with just verse 2, we can learn from Paul. It's right to commend others, to honor and to celebrate what is good in others and to spur on others as they hold fast to the truth. I mean, how many of us are doing that, not just with like right now as you gather, but how many of you are spurring on one another? Keep going, brother. Good job, sister. Good job, way to hold fast to the truth in the midst of a world that is refusing to hear it. Keep holding fast to it. Now, this isn't the main thing that Paul is after in this passage. But we be right to stop and ask ourselves, how are we commending what is good and what is true in others, in your neighbor sitting next to you, in your spouse, in fellow brothers and sisters and friends? How are you commending each other? Now, his commendation here, though, it serves as this gentle transition into an exhortation in verse 3. So this verse is at the crux of all that he's about to say in verses 4 through 16. It's the glue that holds everything else together that he's about to say to you and to us. He wants them, the Corinthians, and he wants you today, he wants you to know something. Now right there, might just be where we can go off the rails. You know, we often like knowing 
knowing about a lot of things. We love to hear in, in America, we love to hear those preachers and others, which isn't bad, but filling our heads with knowledge, and that's good knowing. So it's, we often like knowing, but disconnect, and so often what happens is we disconnect the knowing from the doing. Well, this is just where what he says here in verse 3 is the linchpin of the difficulty. Will we know what he says here and take it up? That's going to be the difficulty for us. But this is what Paul is after. Not knowing for knowing's sake. He wants these things to be in you, among you, among us. So what is he getting at here? So by that word, head, in verse 3, he's alluding to authority. Authority. More specifically, to be clear here, we need to understand head and headship is referring to authority. That's the first sub-point under the first point. Head and headship is referring to authority. And so he says in verse 3, so in light of hearing that, having heard that, that's his point or his emphasis here. Let's read it again. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So this is about who is the leader, the authority. It's about humble, God-exalting leadership. Now that's important to understand. Humble, God-exalting leadership. When you think of Jesus, when you think of Christ, do you think of a cruel, harsh Savior. How many here think that? Right. None of us. <laughs> right? Good. On the same page. Now, when you consider God, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this one, but when you consider God, do you only think of wrath and judgment? Now think about that. Not just even what you think, but what you feel. The way you pray to God. The way you live before God. Well, God is just. He is holy. But He's more, isn't He? Do you think Jesus is gentle and lowly and God isn't? Friends, Jesus is what? He's God incarnate. So God is also gentle and lowly. Amen. Living under the headship of Christ that Paul is talking about here, it is not shackles. As we raised our hand and said, Jesus is gentle and lowly, did you think, shackles? 
We didn't. It's not shackles, it's joy, it's life, it's peace, it's hope, it's comfort, it's rest. If anywhere, everywhere, you can find comfort and safety in Christ. Amen. That's what you'll find in him. That's what he is to us. So in light of this then, we have this outworking of authority in Christ, man, husbands and wives, and headship. Now, it's probably not that first one. In verse 3, the head of every man is Christ, nor even the last one, the head of Christ is God, really, that we might have trouble with. Now, we'll say historically that last one, wow, a lot has been said and written on that last one. But I think today, we don't have, at least here, troubles with the first or the last one. Christ is the authority. He is the head over man, over every believer. No problems. He's my Lord. In my God. I think the problem that we have is with that second one, isn't it? The middle one. The head of a wife is her husband. Now that's the one we might wrestle with. Now what is that saying? It's saying the husband is the head over his wife. He's the spiritual head in the family. This is a God-ordained order of roles and leadership between a husband and a wife. That's what God is saying here through his word. Now Paul, he will go to Genesis in a moment. But let's remember a few parts and pieces from Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. You can turn there if you like, and you can see what I'm getting ready to say for yourself, Genesis 2 through 3. But what we see there in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, and I'll point them out to you, God gave Adam the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. Adam, you are responsible for this command. And we'll see that lived out. He named Adam. He also named the animals, this authority over creation, over the animals even. Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. And he even named the woman. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. And he, Adam, was to lead and to protect his wife. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. One flesh, are you going to protect your body? If someone tries to throw a punch at you, are you going to try to protect yourself? Well, Adam, that's how you're going to protect your wife also. And so he was to lead and protect her. But he didn't, did he? There in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, 
he comes, and even right there, and you were meant to see this, right there in Genesis chapter 3, already the serpent is defying God by going to the woman instead of the man. It's not just that he's questioning God's word. He's reversing the roles that God has set in place, defying God and going to Eve instead of Adam. Adam. He's dishonoring the role relations between a husband and wife. And what does Adam do? Well, he just stands there, doesn't he? You know, and as many have commented today, and I think many are becoming more aware of today, that he wasn't off like somewhere playing in a pond, right? He was right there with her as the serpent is talking to her in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. You see that? He's right there. There is a serpent lying and deceiving her. Who gave, what did God say to you, Adam? What command did he give you? Are you not one flesh? And so there he is. He doesn't crush the serpent's head, but he eats the fruit along with his wife. Now let me ask you, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, who does God come to first? Adam. That's significant. Adam, I gave you this command. You were to lead and protect your bride. What happened? And how does Adam respond? Not good. <laughs> Sadly, he does not repent in dust and ashes, but he points at Eve, and he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 2, the woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. It was her. She's to blame, not me. From God's perspective, which is right, uh-uh. <laughs> no, Adam. You are. And what lessons we have Right there in Genesis 2 through 3, even apart from everything we're seeing in our verses here this morning, how many of us, when we are living in sin, we run and we what? Hide. No one can know about what I do in my sin. Not pastors. I'll tell secular counselors about it, but I won't tell pastors, I won't tell my brothers and sisters in Christ about it at all. I'll hide it. Or, and, it, it wasn't me. It was that, it was, it was them. It was that person. It was what they said. It was what they did. It's what they didn't do. We so quickly blame and excuse our sin. We don't do what God calls us to do and repent in dust and ashes before him, which is what Adam should have done. But he didn't. So since then, even now today, 
we have been at odds with one another. And I'm not just talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about everyone. At odds with one another, such that with verses like these, this whole passage here, many might just say, and at least I've heard this in more rural settings, they might ask or say or tell me, well, pastor, you're just meddling now, (laughs) right? You know what I'm talking about? You're just meddling and addressing these kind of specific things. Well, this passage is hard because it's touching on parts of our lives and culture that don't just offend, offend, but it's hard because we think all of these things are off limits, both inside and outside of the church. They're off limits in your marriage. They're off limits in how you order your home and how you think of men, how you think of women. It's meddling is what this is. But to that, let me just say, friend, it's not meddling. And it's not to be that. It's vital to do exactly as Paul exhorts us here and to understand what he's saying here. Not to defy it, not to ignore it, but to know it and take it up. So Paul, he ends verse 3. And the head of Christ is God. Now, right there, is that ugly? Do you look at that and say, right? This isn't saying that Christ is less here in his submission to the Father. It's beautiful. The Father, the Christ's submission to the Father is born of love. And this is what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. And he says this over and over again. He loves doing whatever the Father says. So see this, John chapter 8, verse 28 through 29. It says, when you have lifted up, Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority. There's authority. But speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's beautiful. As you see that, and as we see what Jesus said in John chapter 8, do we look at that and go, no, we look at that and go, yes, I want that. I want to have that kind of submission to God. Whatever he says, I want to do that. I want to be like Christ in these things. And so as we see that in Jesus, we really see that in this whole refrain of verse 3. And so hear God's words and understand biblical headship without the extremes. Without the extremes. Now, what do I mean? 
What this passage is saying, a husband is the spiritual leader, the authority over his wife and his family. It's not saying he's greater or better or smarter than her. And all the wives here, right now you're thinking, yep, <laughs> right? I mean, so many times, it's exactly the opposite. So this is not talking about greatness. It's not talking about being better. It's not about talking about being smarter or superior or inferior. It's also not saying that the wife is less in her humble following of his leadership, of her husband's leadership, any more than we look at Jesus' submission to the Father and we say, that's disgusting. Right? Do you see the parallel there? If you're disgusted with Jesus, you need to be disgusted with the whole thing. Or if you're disgusted with the middle part, you need to be disgusted with the whole thing. Because that's exactly what we see of Jesus, his submission to the Father. So we don't do this. We don't understand this. We don't take up these words because it's ugly, but because it's beautiful and it's true. So this is not endorsing extremes, the sin-cursed mingling of this. It's not about tyrant husbands. It's about husbands who are to lead and to love like Christ. Is that not a high calling and a great love? That's the kind of leadership a husband is to display. And this is exactly what we see in passages like Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 19. It talks about the wife and it talks about the husband there. And in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, it talks about the wife and it talks about the husband there. And as we're focusing in on husbands here, just see the nature of headship there in Ephesians 5.25. And so it says, this is the way that a husband is to love his wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How big is that? Does that look like shackles? Is that the way Christ is? Does that look like a tyrant husband? Is Jesus a tyrant husband? No, no, no. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So it's a husband and wife living in submission under Christ. And so embracing this picture in verse 3, the husband sacrificially loving his wife and the wife submitting to her husband as before the Lord as Colossians and Ephesians 
says, now, the ugliness is not that. The ugliness is in the ungodly extremes this verse is not calling for. This is not talking about abuse. It's not talking about ungodly tyranny over wives. It's not about being domineering or being inferior or superior. It doesn't mean there's no discussion. There's no debate. There's no working through life and decisions and everything else. That's not what Paul is saying here or anywhere else in the New Testament. That's not it. And the sinful extremes must be a challenge, not just out there in the world, but in our own hearts and in our own lives. So verse 3, and you're like, come on, we got a lot more to go here. We do. Pray for me. <laughs> so with verse 3 before us, we can now turn to the main idea behind head coverings. The main idea behind head coverings, verses 4 through 16. Now here you might be tempted to just say, as we've read these verses here this morning, you know, all of this talk about head, co head coverings has nothing to do with us today. Well, that's not true. As we'll see, that's a far cry from reality. Now just hear me here. Paul's not saying, women, you need to you know, have long hair, and you need to have a head covering. He's not talking about that. That's not where this sermon is going, because that's not what Paul's main emphasis is. But there's much for us to learn here. So as we consider these verses, we do need to understand the Corinthian context here. The Corinthian context. So Paul is bringing all of this up in light of the cultural implications of head coverings, and especially how Corinthians needed to address, like they needed to address this within their church and congregation at that time, to address improper implications about husbands, wives, gender roles, and the wearing or not wearing of a head covering. That's what Paul is addressing. So these coverings were often worn by Roman men like pagan Roman men, and they would pull their toga over their heads as an act of devotion to their gods. And so you see this, this the, then the men in the congregation covering their heads would have those implications as well. Like we have a devotion to other gods as well. Like this is the sort of devotion you are to have. And so in covering the man, covering their head, this was not a neutral act in Corinth. It meant something. Neither was it a neutral act for the woman and the women to cover their heads either. An uncovered head communicated something to the congregation, to the world around them. It would communicate that she was an immoral woman, immoral, immodest, free sexually, and if she was married, she was distancing herself from her husband. Even seeing male and female differences don't matter anymore. All of that communicated through head coverings. And so maybe you see how this could be an issue 
right there in the midst of the church of Corinth. Here they are in the gathering of the church, and here are men with covered heads and women with uncovered heads, and these things are being communicated. Pagan devotion, sexual immorality and modesty. And this might even give us a clue to why Paul brings up the angels in verse 10. They would be looking on. You see there in verse 10? The angels looking on even as they are now. This service. Longing for you to hear the word preached and that you would hear it. They would be looking on and asking, what's going on? With this church. This is worship that is off. It's dishonoring to God. It's dishonoring to his created order. And it's dishonoring to one another as well. As they're gathering to worship God. And so Paul, he addresses each of these. Beginning with men and uncovered heads. Verse 4 and verse 7. So he says in verse 4. A man who prays or prophesies which I take prophecy as something that is different from preaching. And we'll talk about that later in coming chapters. But just hear that. It's different from preaching. So a man who prays and prophesies and covers his physical head, he dishonors his spiritual head, Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Using head in two ways. You're covering your head, you're covering your head meaning Christ. Verse 3, right? So Paul says in verse 7, this ought not to be done. Men are not to worship like that in accord with pagan devotion, in accord with false worship. But they're to worship in view of Christ who is their head. And so that's the men. And so then he, Paul, turns to address women and covered heads. Verses 5 through 6 and verse 10. So wives, on the other hand, they're not to pray or prophesy with their heads uncovered because it dishonors their head. Which again, points back, as we saw from verse 3 to verse, or it points back to verse 3, as we see in verse 10, to that symbol of authority. Pointing back to verse 3, to the husbands. The head over the wife is the husband, the symbol of authority. So by covering their heads, they're making clear that they aren't, by covering them, they're making their clear they're not promiscuous women, but they're modest, husband-honoring wives. They are embracing God's picture for husbands and wives embracing the distinctives between men and women. So rather than cutting their hair in verse 6 and experiencing the disgrace of that, which would also have all those associations like with an uncovered head, they should cover their heads during worship to honor those creative distinctives. Genesis 2. That's why you can't just grab this passage and say, where's the trash can? Paul is rooting these things in God's creation. 
Now, in all of this, Paul ties these points, like I just said, back to Genesis and men and women's interconnectedness. Men and women's interconnectedness. So verses 7 through 12. And he's not just rooting the roles back in Genesis, but he's making clear that his points here are not adding fuel to the fire for those who want to take on those sinful extremes, the tyrants, domineering, those who would say, oh, you see, men are superior after all. Tyranny and abuses, here we come. He's ruling that out. And so he goes back to Genesis chapter 2 that Megan read a moment ago and shows the interconnectedness of men and women. So what we saw there in Genesis chapter 2, we see here also in those verses that Megan read in Genesis 2, 18 through 25. He's not saying she wasn't, like when he says that here, that she wasn't made in God's image. He's not saying that women was not made in God's image, but he's saying God created the man first, and from the man he made a woman, as it says there in Genesis 2.22. And so in that way, I know this is complex, but this is a hard passage. That's why I prayed, Lord, help them keep their minds on today and follow with these things. So in that way, coming from man, she's the glory of man. And this is why Paul has all these fours as well in verses 8 through 9. So verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And then in the Greek, another four, gar. You don't see it there, at least in the SV. But for neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, all of this is simply setting forth verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11. It is the crux of everything that Paul is saying here. Christ, he created everything, and the head of man is Christ. Right? Following me? Genesis 2? And from man is woman taken out of his rib, and the head of a wife is her husband, rooted in created order. And so the order of creation, Paul is saying it matters right now in this church, in this service, in your worship, Corinthians. And the angels are looking on and wondering, are these things being honored, what God has said? Woman came from man, and God has so ordered the husband-wife relations that now she's right to have this symbol of authority on her head, declaring, covering her head, declaring that she is honoring God in his created order in worship before him. That's what Paul is urging them to do. It's not mainly about head coverings. It's mainly about headship and biblical headship and authority. It's mainly about husbands, wives, role relations. It's mainly about men acting like men and women acting like women. How relevant is that today? 
This chapter addresses that in our culture also. Yet Paul, he makes this clarification here. In the Lord, neither are independent of the other. Woman was made from man, but now man is born of woman, right? And all of this, as he says there, according to God's plan, verse 12, and all things are from God, rooting it in Genesis 2, God's created order. his purposes and for his glory and so Paul he concludes then in verses 13 through 16 and he exhorts or is exhortation and it's this make this right judgment make this right judgment now in these last verses when he says judge for yourselves he's not saying you decide based on your culture everything else you figure it out like whether the created order, that stuff, if that's going to hold or not, you figure that out. He's not saying that. He's saying, make this right judgment. You see how this is rooted in creation, in nature. These are the distinctives between husband and wife, male and female, unchangeable. Make this judgment. That's what he's saying. That's the force of his words. He's saying, you decide this. Take up these things. Men are to act like men. Women are to act like women. Now what that means, it might vary from culture to culture. And this is where it's tricky. <laughs> You're like, well, wait a minute. Well, let me just put it this way. I doubt most men here would come in wearing a kilt, right? If I came in on a Sunday and I'm wearing a kilt... You're going to be like, what is he doing, right? I mean, men in America don't go around wearing kilts. But there are men who go around wearing kilts, and it's a masculine thing to do that, right? This is what I mean. It may, be, may vary from culture to culture. But by nature, men are called to be and to act like men. Women are called to be and to act like men. Women, husbands are called to lead and wives are called to godly submission before the Lord unto ordered, God-glorifying worship. And at that point, at this point, you can breathe. Whew. I know that's a lot. Thinking through this verse and this, these verses carefully as we are right to do this morning. So having seen this, how might we take these things and apply them in our day? We've heard a lot of applications already, but there's certainly much to consider here. But we must begin by first considering our relation to Christ. We must consider first our relation to Christ. As in, this morning, do you know Christ? The first thing here isn't all of these other things. These are vital and they're important. They're God's inspired word. But this morning, do you know Christ at all? The one who made you. He made you 
for himself. He came and died and was buried and he rose again to pay the penalty for your sin. Do you know Christ this morning? The one who came to save sinners. The one who came to save rebels against him. The one who has given us these words. These are the words of Christ this morning. The one who is calling you to himself. And so do you know him this morning? Have you repented and believed the gospel? And so we begin right there with Christ in our relation to him. Second, rather than considering how to avoid this passage, consider its direct effect on you. We come to this passage in the midst of a culture that is absolutely boiling over on these issues here. I mean, today, these verses are heresy. And maybe, I don't know how you're receiving this this morning, maybe you've heard this this morning, you're thinking, yep, Friends, they're not the Spirit-inspired words of God, and they're true. Amen. The reason this is a hard passage is not because it's, true, not, because it's not true. It's a hard passage because we know of the extremes, right? We know of the tyrants. We know of the abuse. We know of the domineering husbands or even the domineering wives. We know the challenges to gender and to the family, what it means to be a man today, what it means to be a woman today. We feel the waves of the books and the movies and the shows that herald the abuses, and then they laugh at those who would dare to take up these words, don't they? Laughing stocks. This this passage challenges your marriage and my marriage. And it doesn't just do that. We feel the weights, the weight of our families that maybe have only known just the opposite of this passage. The women have been the leaders in the home. And that's all you've known. And the men followers. And so you taking up these verses is rebellion against your family. I've experienced that. Those are part of the challenges. But there are more. Then we have the spirit of American individualism rising up in us that defies authority. And all of this talk of headship and adding to all of this, we have years and years of neglect of hearing this passage heralded, preached, and applied, or it's being heralded, preached, and applied in wrong ways. Yet even as we know of the extremes, as you have heard, those are extremes. May you not go along with the waves of our culture But see, even as we sang this morning, that these words are wonderful. And we are to take the men up. Men enthralled with their wives. Wives laying, or men laying down their life for their wives. Women 
and wives wives endeared with their husbands and who take up the word before the Lord and follow their husband's leadership and both aiming at outdoing one another and honoring one another. I think as we feel, or at least as we consider these verses, the words of Matthew Henry are fitting in view of Genesis 2.22, the rib being taken out of the man to form the woman. His words are fitting in view of the sense of what we're to take away in this. He says that the woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's what these verses are pointing to. That's not extreme. It's beautiful. So as we have heard these words this morning, may we understand these words receive these truths and worship. As the angels look on right now, may we so live and worship before our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we come and we come praying, Lord, that your spirit would work as we have heard your word even amidst the complexities of it, the difficulties of considering it, thinking through it, using our minds and trying to think through it carefully. Help us, Lord, in applying these words to our lives, to see their importance, to take them up, Lord, that if there is an offense, that we would see not an area that we would say, I need not follow these things, but we would rather say, In what ways have I not been following these things? Lord, help us. Grow us. Give us grace in the midst of these things to apply them, to live them, to do them. May you help any here to do the first things first. And if they don't know Christ this morning, they would put their faith in Christ and even come this morning and give their life to him, we ask. May we respond, we ask, and help us respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.